you know, the way that I grew up was uh, was very tough when I was 17. You know, I was a single teen mom with, you know, no education, no work, quite recent uh, drug habit. I wasn't really likely to survive. So when you start then beating these odds all the time and you've already, you know, proven that the impossible is possible, it just makes things easy. Welcome to Do The Job with me, Melanie Ralph. In this episode, we're thrilled to have Kimberly Larson, a renowned entrepreneur and founder of several successful technology startups. Kimberly's journey started with much adversity, which saw her spending part of her childhood in youth institutions. However, it was the adversity that fueled her motivation. Kimberly shares how ambition became her lifeline amidst constant threats and challenges including heavy drug use in her surroundings. Her latest business, Indie Riot, is backed by millions of dollars in venture capital funding and is revolutionising the social media landscape. The platform empowers individuals and organisations to create their own gated communities, challenging the offerings from the big social media players of our time. As a leading voice in discussions on the evolution of our digital lives, Kimberly serves as a speaker and community commentator on crucial topics within the tech landscape, including on areas such as data ownership, privacy, online safety, the influence of big tech and the societal impact of AI. Get ready for an inspiring conversation as we chat technology, entrepreneurship and personal resilience as Kimberly Larson tells us how to do the job. Larson, thank you so much for joining us today on Do The Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited. What motivated you to become a tech entrepreneur? How did your journey unfold to lead you to become uh, the owner of Indie Riot? That is possibly the, the most difficult question to answer, I think, because looking back, there are all these extremely random, naive moments that seem quite coincidental at the time, which which all sort of led uh, led up to this moment. But I think there is a, a red thread that ever since I was quite young, I would see a problem or I would see something that I thought uh, would have a better solution and I would not be able to stop myself from fixing it. Um, and, you know, as as that grows and you sort of get the motivation that goes a little bit outside yourself when you go through your teens and uh, and everything, um, you, you also get the feeling of, you know, there's ways that you can impact this world into something that matters. And when I discovered innovation and technology, to me, it was just, you know, the eureka moment like it is actually possible to make huge change. Your childhood, you know, you faced adversity like many young people do. Um, I just wondered how much of that has driven you to your journey today. I think ev- absolutely everything. You know, the way that I grew up was uh, was very tough and you had to find all the different routes, all, all the ways that you went would be different from anybody else 
Um, and people would tell you no absolutely all the time. Even statistic would tell me that I was not likely to be a success. Actually, looking at my complete history of when I was 17, you know, I was a single teen mom uh, with, you know, no education, no work, quite recent uh, drug habit. And uh, I wasn't really likely to survive. So when you start then beating these odds all the time and you've already you know, proven that the impossible is possible, it just makes things easy. You know, things that could floor somebody else like an investor turning them down, that's, that's nothing. You know, it's absolutely, it, it's just a tiny little bump on the way and it, it, it's completely meaningless. It doesn't shake my, my sense of existence. So <clears throat> I... I I was listening to another podcast where they were discussing the difference of um, PTSD, PTSD and, and the opposite, which is the thriving version, where some people actually tend to thrive because it feels like they have been given a second chance and they've been given these superhuman uh, tools that they can use. And, and I think I'm very much in that category I'm just really appreciative of the opportunities that I've had and the ways that I've been able to turn my life around and uh, the experiences it's given me. That's such a motivational thing for people to hear who possibly feel like the world is conspiring against them. Yet, if you can take that to something positive, I must ask you, how do your family view you now, now that you are uh, obviously a very successful tech entrepreneur I, I think they feel that this is what I always was and you know the other period was <clears throat> being lost for a while I mean from I was I was very young I, I, I was an extremely ambitious child so and and I, I always had very clear ideas of what I would do in the world and the reasonings behind it and I never saw a reason why I could not be a prime minister and then, you know, the second choice was then to become an actress because then I could be a prime minister one day, but I could be an air pilot the next. So that was just more practical. And I got this obsession. I really, really wanted to be an actress. And, you know, um, the, the, the job ads back in, in those days, they were in the newspapers. And I would sit every single day looking through the newspapers and be like, why are there no lead roles against Leonardo DiCaprio here? And it was just ridiculous to everybody, right? And they were like, of course, you're not going to be an actress and that's never going to work. And then my whole youth came when I was, you know, only acting out and I was in and out of youth um, institutions and, and uh, you know, definitely never going to, to be anything. And yet when I got to the, the, the path where I was like, I'm going to make something of myself, I still decided on acting. And you know, everybody around was like, how? How are you still not learning? Why don't you do something that's a little bit more realistic? And yet, you know, my first ever full-time job was one of the leads for what's still Norway's biggest TV success. And um, yeah, just uh, keeping on to those like really naive dreams because they feel meaningful to you. That's what's going to make you actually discontinue because mm. it's going to be rough either way, right? How did you pivot from acting into technology and, and become such an expert in your field? 
So, so I started my career as an actress and then I moved on to being a TV host. I started directing things and, and I also did a lot of reporting. And I was offered this side gig uh, doing reporting for something called Mobile Monday. I don't know if you are familiar with it, but it started off in Finland with a bunch of um, uh, engineers who, who decided they wanted to start companies, but they couldn't really present their ideas in a good way. So they started out meeting every first Monday of the month in a pub and, and sort of practice pitching to each other. And it turned out to be this uh, huge global uh, concept in 95 countries. It was quite big. And um, I was asked if I could do some reporting on that in, uh, in New York and in San Francisco and traveled and started speaking with entrepreneurs and, and doing these stories, which I found extremely fascinating. And then I was headhunted by a company called Quick. They were the, the first live streaming on your mobile phone uh, software, and they wanted me to do TV for them. So this was still like, uh, I was very much on the storytelling and, and television uh, mindset, but I, I sort of got a glimpse into technology. Um, a lot of things happened. I didn't get my work visa, ended up going to Thailand for a few years instead, very like random path. But when I then went back into the creative industry, I started seeing challenges in a new way. I would see, you know, we were living in a time where we'd never had as much need for creative content or content producers, but still, you know, extremely creative, talented freelancers would go from global film projects to be unemployed the rest of the year. Or I would sit at the big production houses and struggle with access to all these freelancers. And having then that little glimpse of what you can do with technology, I decided that, you know, can't be that hard, I guess, to create a solution. Uh, of course, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, but that was sort of my first pivot into um, technology when I then started the company that was a marketplace for the creative industry. And I knew absolutely nothing. I actually um, had the idea and I called a friend and I said, you're in tech, help me build this platform. It's going to change the world. And she said, well, first of all, I don't think you understand what I do because I'm a graphic designer. Uh, second of all, do you have UI? Do you have UX? And I was like, mm-hmm. While I was Googling, what is UI? What uh -huh. is UX? That was the level of, of my knowledge. But I really thought that I could make a difference. So you, you can find these things out. You can learn and then you can hire other people who know more than you. And um, once you get a taste, of technology and innovation I don't think it's a way back you have learned along the way you must have to invest some money with your idea what percentage wise do you put on the line to say you know what I need to hire someone to design this program or I need to hire someone to do x y and z for my company so how do you make that leap from idea to spending to getting it actually made yeah, and, and that's a world of difference first time around to when you've actually done it before, because when, you know, I had to learn how to write a business plan and get funding without a team and then try to get a team without actually having funding. And it, you know, it's a puzzle with a lot of pieces that don't really fit. Um, but because you're so passionate, like you start going out to these networking events and you, 
you know, you start speaking with people and then one person will introduce you to another person, introduce you to another person. Um, so the first time was just really gathering a lot of building blocks and trying to find like, well, what do I place first to actually get the other? And uh, I entered a couple of competitions and pitched the idea and I won some funding that way. I think a really good place to start if you've done absolutely nothing is maybe like incubators, acceleration programs, those those kind of things where you actually get a chunk of all of it. You get access to both resources and a little bit of funding and, and help to really de develop the idea. You know, when you've done it before, it's a little bit different. You sort of know the process and you, you know, you spend the, the time formalizing your idea, writing it out in a pitch deck. And then, you know, I've already had investors. My co-founder has done a very successful uh, journey before. So, you know, pitching the idea to investors, getting the funding, hiring the team we knew that we needed. Your initial first company, how long did it take to get that from idea to reality? Oh, I took forever. And I, I actually, I was picturing because I felt that I was solving a problem that was so huge for this industry that I'd grown up in and really loved, I I thought people would be you know, throwing roses at me and, and thanking me for, for doing this. And it was it was actually quite the opposite. And it, it took us more than a year to even get a pilot in place. And once we launched it, there was, uh, I, I would even find groups online saying like, this is a scam. Nobody would like to treat freelancers nicely. And I was like, I'm, I'm trying to help. How How is this uh, possible? And then, of course, it was iterations after iterations. And I think it took us like three years for the, the first time, starting from the, the bootstrap to, to get it up and running. And again, it's a, it's a very different route when you start off getting funding to begin with. So this time around, we already had, you know, we raised our first... Um, our first round we raised in only four days and two months later we were already live with a, a pilot customer so it can go extremely quick but once you have to learn everything from scratch not really knowing exactly where to find this information it just takes so long. What would be your advice to someone who's trying to start out and wants to do it alone. Do you think it's easier to do it in a partnership or alone? Or what would your advice be? Do it in a partnership. Whatever you do, don't do it alone. Like whatever. So my, my previous uh, company was, was alone. And, and even investors and advisors would always say like, oh, you should get a co-founder. I'm like, yeah, well, I don't have one. That's very unnecessary advice. You're not really helping me. Mm -hmm. But looking back at it, I... I won't do it again alone. I've seen friendships gone sour because they started something together. I've seen um, romantic interests go sour because they started things together. But I've also seen uh, new relationships both go sour and blossom. I, I think having a very clear expectation of what is the other person like how do they work? What would the responsibility division really look like? And uh, never expecting it to be equal. It's never going to be equal because you're going to bring different aspects into it. You're going to bring different skill sets. You're going to have different lives. Maybe one has a family, one doesn't. And just if, you, if you're able to acknowledge all of that beforehand, 
make almost like a partnership contract perhaps and and really have realistic expectations to how it will be working together I think it can go well that sounds like solid advice Uh, would you find as you've gone through your journey that people have been wanting to help and trying to give you great advice or what's been your experience with the people that you've encountered on your journey yeah I think I've been extremely lucky because I feel I met a huge amount of people who's uh, been willing to share their advice or or share um, knowledge experiences however I, I think there's something quite important to remember when you're asking for advice as well because open-ended advice puts a lot of work on the person you are trying to receive advice from uh, and that that sort of is not really a fair way of asking if, if you are going through it could be something like building up your pitch deck t- to pick a, a, an easy concrete example um if you know that okay I'm struggling with how to shape the storytelling then you know that you could go to someone who's an expert in that and say specifically, I've done this work already, would you be willing to review it and give me feedback? But if you're like, I don't know how to tell my story, then suddenly you're putting all of the work on on the advisors. And I think if you manage to do that in a good way, that's what's going to be the difference from getting good advisors and getting a lot of help to, to actually being ghosted a little bit on on the way that you approach. It's the same with investors as well, I think. Like being a little bit wary of of what you ask for from whom is going to increase your success rate. Understanding who are these investors? What kind of sectors do they usually invest in? What what time do they invest? Are they, you know, pre-seed or series A? Um, do they have other companies that are similar to yours? If you do all that background work and actually, you know, approach them with a bit of a knowledge about uh, what they do and being able to prove that you are actually relevant for them to look at, then you're not wasting anybody's time and you are not going to get as many negative responses either. You've mentioned that you don't have any piece of paper of qualifications in any particular tech as it were but you're obviously very experienced in the world of tech what what qualifications or experiences do you think are crucial for someone going into the tech industry now um, whether it's free uh, resources or whether it's a course or, or, or a particular area is there something you could buy advise people that they could get if they wanted to enter the tech industry right now I mean, if you have any software, uh, if you're a developer, it does make your route quite a lot easier. Of course, it depends what you want to do. If you want to start a company, I think the most important thing that you need is understanding the industry that you want to enter. Like You need to understand the ins and outs uh, based around the problem that you want to solve. And then it's anything that can sort of back that up of of whether it's, you know, strategic background or financial background, any, um, you should have like basic insight into tech. I didn't. Uh, However, that's quite a few years ago and I had an extremely steep uh, learning curve, but understanding enough about tech to understand what kind of people you would need or what kind of, you know, software that would be needed to build whatever product that you're offering but there are so many resources now 
there are so many, uh, both if you look at the incubator accelerator route, if you even go to places like the Y Combinator to, to look at their resource bank where you have you know all the all the ins and outs to what does it take to build a company or then you know i spend a lot of time listening to like this podcast this is an extremely valuable um resource for people who want to enter into industries and and you can get a good insight into um what hurdles people needed to overcome in order to and tell us about the problem that you have tried to solve with indie riot yeah, so one of the things that ever since I met my co-founder in 2016 that we really bonded on was there has to be a way to better combine how we live our online offline lives. So as you know, we've moved into this time where you are so extremely dependent on being online, both for you know banking, uh, social, how you get your news, how you shop, how you interact, everything is social. But the ways that we live online is so extremely separated from how we live our offline lives. And, you know, the whole data ownership has really been challenging to me to see how we are giving out so much of ourselves, both as, you know, end users, but also as business owners with absolutely no control over what happens to that data how is it used? How are we re-exposed to the information that we put out there? And also ROI. We are not benefiting from the content that's being created or the businesses that are building communities. So we wanted to look at uh, ways that we could actually allow people to have the same types of access to be able to use online the same way that we've gotten familiar with with, with social media but with complete data ownership. And uh, that was the start of Indie Riot. And how has the uptake been? And, you know, we saw immediately that the timing for this was good. It's, and, and that's things that are proven by things like investors or customers, but also, you know, we joke around of Meta being our greatest marketing department. But we joke with it because it's a little bit true. People are really, really waking up to what it means to have no privacy. <clears throat> People are waking up to what it means to having no insight and control of their online communities. We see you know, EU regulations, fines being given out, more and more people flocking to niche communities for absolutely good reason. So the timing for what we did was was perfect and uh, I guess that's what you need mostly when you build a startup is timing. I mean when I see Indie Riot and what it's trying to do by creating these individual communities for businesses is it a business to business initiative for yes. businesses to go to? It does seem very much David versus Goliath. You are going up as you say you mentioned Meta you're going up against some of these really big tech companies. Does it feel like that to you? It does. It, it does. And, and um, it's surprising sometimes to me that uh, it's not a bigger uprising towards Meta, if we use them as an example, right? There's not really a, another company who's proven time and time again and, and said directly, like, no, we don't value 
end users' privacy. They, they say it straight out. They prove it time and time again. And, you know, all of us are still like, it's nice to be connected online. Uh, and, and it really surprises me that it's no ability to, to really demand something better. However, you know, it's a for-profit business. They, they have their business models, they have their shareholders, and, and they are open about what they're not open about. So it's really down to a couple of things. It's down to, you know, legislators to, to make sure that they um, highlight and prioritize people's privacy. It's down to brands to ensure that they are actually um, valuing their audience's privacy. It's down to end users to gain more knowledge about what they are giving out, what might happen to it, why it's good, why it's not, and make conscious decisions. And then we need alternatives. And that's where we come in. We have to be able to see that there are other ways of doing what we're doing today in, in better circumstances for us to move from, well, it has been working so far. And when all of these things come together, which is the timing where we're at now, we see, we see that the big brands are not only valuing customer privacy, but they also want to be able to understand their users and communicate with their customers in a better way. They're not going to be able to do that with the services that are there now. So they need platforms like ours to actually give better service and provide better products. Now I must ask about raising capital for this new initiative. You know, funding has gone off of a cliff recently. Is the golden age of e-commerce over and what's causing that, that drop in funding? I think it's a lot of just stabilizing again. You know, it, it goes up and down and it stabilizes, goes up and down and it stabilizes. And in terms of fundraising, um, you know, the greatest value of it is actually just validating your idea. Uh, and uh, so getting a yes from an investor or multiple investors is, is yes, it's a promise of cash there and then. It might be also a future promise of cash that they will do follow-ups. In reality, it is just a validation of the idea and you need to sort of pick a strategy and go with it for how this company will be funded moving forward. So... Uh, you know, we've chosen very much, although we've raised quite a lot of uh, money and we have very good backing by by good and experienced uh, VCs who are also experts in B2B SaaS where we are. So it's a good sweet spot. Um, but it is scary seeing how quickly things can change and, and how little money is suddenly available, not really knowing. And then a new trend will pop up and suddenly all money will move and if you don't have AI you're not getting any of the funding um, we chose quite early on that we wanted to go for a very lean strategy we wanted to quickly get the product out to the market we wanted to you know quickly do testing quickly get revenue in place and see if we can get to a place of by default live just so that we are um, a little bit better off in the harder times which you know I think that is a, a good strategy. However, you also see, you know, people get maybe easier access to money if they are only selling the potential and an idea. Because even, you know, the height in 2021 and everybody was getting money and the valuations was super high, 
you know that it's going to come down. You don't know exactly when it's going to come. You don't know exactly how long it's going to last. You know, there's still going to be companies who will get money in that time, but you don't know if you're going to be one of them. And you, there's just so many moving parts and unknowns that picking a strategy that you believe in that will make your company successful and not only relying on how you will be raising all these uh, rounds, I think is the, the good route to go. And that is what makes the good companies. And then you can have the proof from the market and you'll have some revenue and you'll be able to make some adjustments if things are really hard. And um, it's it's a little bit interesting to see as well. I mean, we call it risk capital, but the biggest thing that we see is that they don't really want to take a lot of risk now. Like companies that are profitable are more likely to get the risk capital where there's not that much risk anymore. And then I think, you know, we, we have a quite strict fundraising process. We also do huge like scorecarding for investors. And I know this is not very common, but specifically for the reason that we don't know what the investment scene is going to look like. And it will be anything from the standards, like what industry are they in? Do they do follow-ups? What kind of success stories do they have? Who are their partners? Do they have diversity on the Like, it can be lots of things, but then even a lot down to EQ things, like how we get along with them. It's pretty extensive. And then we've said no to money uh, because we don't think that they are the right investors. And all because we know that there will be times when it's going to be tough, who believes mostly in our strategy? Who believes in our end goal so that we know that we can get through the, the harder times together? It's even more like Dragon's Den than I thought it was. <laughs> it, it, it very much is like Dragon's Den. It very much is. <laughs> What's your advice for people going into tech? What psychological attributes do they need? And particularly for women, what... What would advice would you give for a woman that wants to enter this industry? How have you found it personally? Be wary to take advice from men as a woman. Uh, not to talk men down. And I have a lot of great male advisors. But I think if you're going in, find uh, find some women mentors, perhaps. You know, you need uh, to have a lot of resilience. You need to have a lot of grit. Um, but I think one of the more important things is to have self-confidence. Um, you need to be independent so that you can do what people tell you that you can't, because there are going to be so many people who tell you that you can't do it. There's going to be, a, you know, not even people, it's going to be your bank account is going to tell you this is absolutely not possible or your family life or your schedule. It, so you need... Uh, you need to be able to build that self-confidence. And I think a lot of the self-confidence lies in the problem that you're solving. If, if what you are doing seems extremely meaningful to you, that is going to be your biggest strength. Because even if you're extremely well-funded, you've got customers, you've got a proof model, you've got a great team, there are going to be so many days where you feel completely alone. It feels like the world is, world is against you. You don't know how you're going to you know, push through. And the only thing that's actually going to get you there is the belief in, in what you're doing is important and it means something to you. So I'm interested also, before we move on, um, to get your take on, as an entrepreneur, 
how much do you take on yourself and how much do you outsource? I can imagine you're watching the pennies, you're watching your profit margins and you feel like you want to take it all on yourself. What's your advice on that aspect? Which also is a very female thing to do, I think, take take everything on, which is a good thing at some times. So, of course, in the beginning, you'll do everything on your own, which is great. Like you shouldn't outsource things too early because and not only from a money saving perspective, but you need to understand the different roles in order to actually onboard someone else to do it. Outsourcing is pretty hard for things in a company because it's a lot of training to someone who doesn't have that you know, um, ownership to it. You can have a certain amount of ownership, but, but still not the same way you do. So really understanding all the elements before you start outsourcing them. But then on the other side, like making sure that you always value your own time. So understanding what it is, what is it actually costing to have me do this rather than someone else and, and finding that perfect balance or it could also be, you know, what is it costing? Because I don't know what I'm doing and I could rather pay someone who would solve it in a better way, a faster way, um, creating better solutions. Right, Kim, it's now time for your quick fire round. Oh, nice. Your biggest career regret? None. None at all. I have no career regrets. I have some things that, that have been awkward, a uh, little bit embarrassing, but yeah, no regrets. Great. Your career standout moment? It, it's been quite a few, but the one that people still come up to me for is, of course, the, the role that I played uh, when I was 18. And I played the mute maid who had a lot of life experiences in the two years I was on the show. Uh, I started recording it in 1998 and people will still recognize me on the street and think that that's the greatest thing I've done in my entire career. So I, I guess I'll have to say that one. Your top tip to break into your industry? Solve an actual problem, not create a problem to solve a solution. So you, you, you need to solve a problem that already exists. There are a lot of entrepreneurs who are creating problems because they thought of something that could be a fun solution. That's not going to work. You need, it needs to already be a problem that you have identified. Instead of asking you what you earn, let's frame it in your terms of your ride to work. Does your job afford you a bike, taxi, Toyota or Ferrari? <laughs> my <clears throat> my job affords me my electric bike that I use year round. I change to winter tires, uh, and also an electric car. So I guess the equivalent of a Toyota. And in terms of societal impact, have you a changed people's mind, b changed the narrative, or c changed the world? Change the narrative. So far, hopefully, we will change the world with that narrative there's the ambition yes yes so now on to the last section the future of your industry how do you see emerging technologies shaping the future of your industry and what challenges or opportunities do they present 
there are some huge challenges. And I think the challenges are almost mostly human related. You know, it's all about like data ownership, uh, uh, privacy, and we need uh, we need some regulations. And we also need to get to a point of, of understanding the necessity of knowledge, the necessity of what happens with our privacy. Uh, e even with people waking up a little bit more, it's, you know, we're living in, some of us are living in, in, in peace times and it's quite hard to see how dangerous it actually can be with all the data that you give away because it's not yet been sold to um, insurance companies or to political parties, or maybe they are, <laughs> there's, there's discussions of that. Um, so some parts can be solved by, by regulations, but I think there's a lot of responsibility in all of us as end users in, in gaining a little bit more, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit more knowledge and understanding of what is happening to all the data that we're giving away today. With innovations and new products, particularly like yours, Indie Riot, do you see our digital lives changing significantly? And if so, what timescale do you see that in? Yes, significantly. And over the next few years, because just having access to alternatives change people's behavior. As soon as we change people's behavior, there is more opportunities uh, that are going to open up. And once you start realizing, and I, and I guess, you know, you, you can divide it into two because you've got the compliance on one side, like the legal and ethical reasons, then, you know, that that's that's the whip. But, you know, the 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 carrot versus the stick is, is almost always just much more impactful. And once you start seeing the ROI, by being able to actually have the insight that you need of your audience and you're able to add, add uh, added value services and new revenue streams. And as an end user, you actually get value for the communities that you're part of. Once you're experiencing that you can have something more and you can have something better, it's going to go super quick. But I guess we'll see the first pieces of change over the next two, three years. And then within the next 10 years, we will be living completely different online. And we have to finish up, unfortunately, because we're running out of time. But I'd love just to hear what being a tech entrepreneur has done for you personally in, in your life. It has um, really given me amazing insight into the possibilities of change and, and how you know, just a small company can make a huge difference on, on, on good and bad, but for me, focusing, of course, on 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 the good and uh, the way us humans have the ability to solve problems in efficient ways, it is the most exciting thing in the world. And if it's allowed to say, like being a tech entrepreneur, it's like being on crack, but on a good way. <laughs> any last tips and tricks if uh, anyone wants to enter the tech entrepreneur world be brave reach out to people like i walk anybody who gets in touch on linkedin asking for advice like i'm i'm happy to contribute with whatever i can be brave because you believe that you're doing something that's worth doing kimberly larson thank you very much for joining us on do the job thank you for having me